0: Hello. Hi, welcome back. Thanks for coming back for part two of Filmish Chat's special presentation at the Toronto International Film Festival. Um, if you haven't listened to part one, part one includes all of the red carpet interviews that I did while being press at this year's Toronto Film Festival. And I also give some context um, into what the experience was like. Um, This one's going to be a little less chatty from me um, and more chatty from actual creative people um, in the industry and filmmakers. So there was a total of five screenings that I went to um, that featured Q&As from the cast and crew after the screenings. Um, Two of them were press conferences, which we could not um, record. Um, So that was the press conference for The Good Nurse, um, which stars Eddie Redmayne and Jessica Trastain. And then the other one was for My Policeman, um, which stars Harry Styles. Um, So you can go find those press conferences on any of the official TIFF channels. But the other three screenings um, included Q&As after seeing the film. So these were public screenings that were classified as premium screenings by the festival. Um, so anyone can buy a ticket for it. And essentially what you get after you watch the film is you get a Q&A with any of the cast and crew that decided to come to the festival, um, which is really one of the perks of going to a film festival rather than just seeing it um, in the cinema once it's released worldwide. Um, because you get that one-on-one experience with the people behind the films and the people who created it. So as I mentioned in part one, this section of TIFF content does it does include a lot of spoilers for the films um, because obviously the people who are in the cinema listening to these Q and A's have just finished watching the movie. Um, so a lot of times the questions that come from either audience members or the interviewer include spoilers about the movie. So I would advise if you don't want to be spoiled, do pause this and come back to it after you've seen the film once it's been released. And as I said in part one, um, the audio recording isn't the best. Um, this particularly, this section isn't really going to be the best audio recording because I was sitting in the cinema, so it does have a bit of a reverb to it. I will say in particular, the Empire of Light Q&A was really is really not good (laughs) and I debated not including it in this um, but I do think there was a lot of good things talked about in the Q&A that um, is worth hearing if you've seen the film and if you want to learn more about the process behind making the film. I deemed what was being said worthy enough to include it despite its terrible audio quality. Um, And that is primarily because I was fidgeting so much um, when I was recording it. So you hear a lot of like bumps and the sound constantly changes. And also because I was all the way up in the very top um, upper circle of this. It wasn't a cinema. It was an actual theater. So I was up at the very, very top. So it sounds very distant because I was very far away from uh, where the sound was coming from. So I'm not going to spend too much time talking in this episode. I'm just going to pretty much preface each clip um, before I play them and just let the creative minds behind these films do most of the talking. So let's move in now to part two of Filmy's Chats featuring after-screening Q&As. The first Q&A that you're going to hear is for Richard Eyre's new film, Alleluia, which had its world premiere at TIFF. Set in a Yorkshire geriatric hospital, this glorious reunion of Oscar winner Judi Dench and director Richard Eyre is a spirited homage to the idiosyncrasies of old age and the fortitude of healthcare workers. It's a film that stars Jennifer Saunders, Bally Gill, David Bradley, Russell Tovey, and Judi Dench. And it's an adaptation from one of Alan Bennett's stage play. I did a full review of this film over on Film East's Instagram, um, and that's at Films underscore East, and that's Films with an S underscore East. So you can read my full review of Alleluia over there. You will notice the um, host asked questions to the audience, um, which I did cut out the bits of the audience speaking because she does restate the question later. Um, for everyone to hear, and it's kind of hard to hear some of the people speaking. The ones from the recording that you can hear quite clearly, I kept in. So it may sound like there's a bit, a bit of a jump in time, and that is because I edited some of those questions out, just so because it just sounded like dead air. Um, but it's quite an interesting Q&A, um, and I think there's some insightful things said. Um, so without further ado, here is the Alleluia post-screening Q&A with Richard Eyre, Ballygill and Kevin Loder.
1: Is there anything that you would like to say before I take questions?
2: Um, Simply, you were a wonderful audience. (laughs) For its first audience, there was nothing that you missed. And um, I still find myself being very affected by this film, and I think maybe you did too.
1: Struck a chord with her for many reasons. Her question is: Could you explain the reasoning behind having the head nurse become a killer at the end?
2: Well, she hasn't become a killer. Um, If you call a killer, um, as indeed she is, she has been practicing that method of ending people's lives. I think we are expected to think for some time. Um, The film. Uh, oscillates between the utopian doctor who believes in the possible perfection of the system and the utter pragmatist who is the the nursing sister and um, I'm not saying she is a model but simply she is the logical extension of a particular policy that demands a certain level of, of delivery
1: Thank you. And you here with the sunglasses on your head? <laughs> All right, if I can give a brief synopsis of that too. <laughs> I think I understand your question. So um, I believe she's saying there's a natural end to the story where we have the discovery about the nurse, and yet you further end the film with the doctor. And so can you speak a little bit about that decision?
2: yes i think the story is incomplete without the coda, and, and perhaps value could speak to that point. Yeah, i
3: just uh, with, with the film especially with um some of the research that i was doing in terms of looking at the system in terms of looking at doctors and nurses um it's a tough it's a tough task um it's, it's incredibly um, Difficult. It's incredibly hard um, and what the film does pick up on is what we are providing as a service in terms of the NHS, what is allowed to be kind of in terms of care and then what are the pressures that are being put upon those doctors and nurses. So I think it was really important to highlight to like that as well and you know, to, to, give, to, give
2: to give them a voice as well. And I think also to make a film about healthcare and old age and not include a coda about uh, coronavirus would have been mm-hmm. a direction of PG. Mm-hmm.
4: I think mm-hmm. that's
2: the idea. Yeah.
4: Oh, I, I mean, the play, Alan Bennett wrote the play in 2018, I think, was when it was on in London. So I mean, a lot has happened in the debate around health about our expectations of health professionals about how the elderly particularly were treated during coronavirus, which tended to focus this debate you know, in even more extreme and sharp ways. But I think the one thing everybody agrees on, I'm sure here as well as in the UK, is you know, the dedication of characters such as planning portrays in the film has been immense.
1: The gentleman is observing that the structure of the film is very interesting and unique, that you use um, voiceovers, some back and forth, and um, there's all manner of different narrative tools there. Can you speak about those choices?
2: Yes. The film began as, as um, Kevin has said, uh, as a play written by Alan Bennett, was then adapted by excellent writer Heidi Thomas. When I first received the script, there was... Um, the voiceover largely came in the second half of the film. And there was a speech which now, are the first words you hear in the film, which immediately struck me uh, and struck me as a sort of subtitle and subtext of the whole film. And the first words that Ali's character speaks, are, I have always loved the old. And it seemed to me such a remarkable statement um it's one that i haven't heard people speak publicly at all and um (laughs) (laughs) Um, and it's the old are increasingly marginalized um so that having decided i wanted to begin the film with those words it kind of dictated the way the Um, the, The voiceover was distributed throughout the film. And then I always felt very strongly that the last words of the film should be spoken directly to the audience. And it's still quite shocking, I think, when he takes off his mask and takes off the surgical gown and speaks directly to us with great passion, with great feeling, and I think with great justice.
1: Uh, up in the second balcony, there's someone in a mask, <laughs> please.
3: That's only how I can see it, thank you. For each of you, you sort of answered from your point of view, but for the other two, what was the moment when you saw it, the draft of the story or the script that you felt you had something to bring to what is an incredible story? That's a lovely question.
1: And the gentleman is asking, he feels that you someone somewhat answered it. Um, but perhaps for the other two of you, was there a particular moment when you read the script or people approached you that you knew you had to do this? No,
3: uh, no. no <laughs> I, 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 reading the script and then and discovering what Sister Gilpin does and reading, and the, the humour as well. It's it's incredibly warming, heartwarming um, piece. And so you have this real juxtaposition of real light. Quite quick sort of remarks, and then you get hit with a lot of sort of emotional uh, connection between characters, and that's what's most fascinating. That's what I found doing the actual process was there was a lot of two, you know two-handed sort of scenes with people like Judy Dench and and Saunders, and you know I just found it like I was it was a masterclass of just you know great British talent. Um, felt very blessed to be in it. So. And, and what they brought to it as well, you know, when they're so we reading it to, to then put it on its feet to then I mean, just watching everyone it, like, this is this is incredible. <laughs> um, I,
4: I mean I think for me, because I produced the last two films that have come out of Alan Bett and it's later than the History Boys, so I was my connection with it is sort of through Alan in a way. And although Heidi has transformed Alan's material in this case, but like all of Alan's work it is not. You know, some people think about is a cosy writer. He is not a cosy writer. You know, he's very truthful, and he's very warm, and he's very funny, but he's not cosy. And you can see that here, and you can see it. Some of the same themes are as well about caring and dignity, and it seems to be a wonderful, but rather, you know, necessary
1: Yes, back there, please. You have blonde hair? Yes. <laughs> um, that's a great question. You are now being
3: added
1: to a film. <laughs> um, so, the question is she works teaching students who work in geriatrics. What would you like them to take out of this film that would make them agents of change?
2: I simply think the recognition that every individual is separate and that generalizing about people and the care of people is um, the consequence of the logical consequence of that is treating people as a mass who and, and that's really big. the logical extension of what uh, the nursing sister believes it's a matter of, of churning um, beds over and not thinking thinking about the system first. And the people second. So all I would say is love. Love. The film ends, begins, and ends with love. I have always loved old people, and uh, his final line is about love. So that's what uh, needs to be given to everybody and and old people.
1: We have time for one more question here in the front, please. Um, I think you may have addressed this already, but we will ask uh, perhaps in a different way. Her question is: um, she sees the symmetry within the film, um, and it starts with, I have always loved the old, but you do ask the question: if we do love the old,
2: why do we put them away? It's, um, it's a question that obviously the film raises but doesn't answer. Um, The point is made, I hope, in a very lightly touched fashion that in certain societies they deal better with old age. And if you go to India or um, any country in Asia, you would see more respect from generation to generation and more sense of continuity between generations and if you go to Japan it's rather shocking to be discovered that as an old person that you're revered rather than projected. Uh,
4: I think the film also talks a little, you know, in that light touch there's quite a lot about how much the young had to learn from the experience of the old. You know, just because it's gone it doesn't mean it wasn't valuable. It's another of the themes So you know, the individual testimony of characters like Joe. Uh, very
1: important. I want to thank you so much for bringing this film to us in Toronto. It's been
3: a great time.
0: The next Q&A is for the film Empire of Light, which is Sam Mendes' new film that really pays homage to the beauty of cinema and the place that cinema has in a lot of people's hearts and lives. The film stars Olivia Colman, Michael Ward, Tanya Moody, Tom Brooke, Toby Jones, Colin Firth, and others. And it's produced by Pippa Harris and Sam Sam Mendes, and the cinematography is done by absolute legendary cinematographer Roger Deakins. The film follows a group of people working at the Empire, which is an old time cinema that you don't see too often. It's set in 1980s Britain and explores issues such as racism, mental health, and the impact of art in one's life. It's a very special film, um, and I think it's probably my favorite Sarah Mendez film so far. Um, I think it's it very much pays tribute to the love of cinema, and to have seen it at a film festival that's so important in the world of cinema um, was very special. And it was very special um, to have some of the cast and crew at the screening afterwards to do a QA. and a So this Q&A um, features Sam Mendes, along with cast Olivia Colman, Michael Ward, and Tanya Moody, and cinematographer Roger Deakins, and Pippa Harris, who is the main producer for the film. As I mentioned in the beginning, This audio is really, really not the best. I do very much apologize, but I do think it's worth listening to um, if you did want some more insight into the film, because there's a lot of quite insightful things said, uh, particularly by Sam Mendes, um, which I think is very nice. So um, just to preface, the first question um, that the host asks um, Sam about the film um, is sort of exploring what the autobiographical nature of the film is about um, and I cut out the first question just because it was very difficult to hear. Again, like I said in the beginning, I was moving around a lot and I was quite unsettled. Um, So I just thought I would preface before Sam Mendes starts talking at the very start of this Q&A. He's talking about the autobiographical nature of the film and sort of how it still pays homage to his life but is also still a work of fiction. Without further ado, here is the post-screening Q&A of Empire of Light with Sam Mendes, Olivia Colman, Michael Ward, Tanya Moody, Roger Deakins, and Pippa Harris.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's personal without being autobiographical, which is quite a difficult thing to explain, you know. um, The main part of it that's personal is the journey of Olivia's character, Hillary, is loosely based on the journey of my mother. Um, which is a journey through mental disintegration to the point where uh, she put herself back together again and it's a a sort of cycle, which I think a lot of people who've dealt with mental health issues, either themselves or with family members, um, have witnessed that cycle. Um, Medication, coming off medication, uh, elation and um, hyper. So that was that was something that had haunted me since a child, i part of my life, I'm part of why I am, who I am, and I ended up doing what I'm doing. Um, but then it was combined with a number of other things, that the period, uh, which is when I was effectively Stephen's age, uh, the early 80s, the music that defined me, the movies that defined me, the way that popular culture offered me an escape from what was going on at home. Um, offer me a way out, as it often does with people aren't, a way out of crisis. Um, and it was a time also when my, you know, racial opinions and racial politics were very divisive at the time, as they still are in many ways. And all of these things were going around my head during lockdown when I tried to write the script. Period of self-examination, um, as all of us did, you know, that feeling that maybe all of this was gone maybe we'll never be here all sitting together in a dark room watching a story, and maybe that was was it, and maybe we didn't know how lucky we were while we had it. And so I I was drawn back to that time on a number of levels. So all of those things, I think, went into the making of it and the writing of it. I wanted to say thank you to my mum before the movie, but there were lots of people to introduce, and I wanted to say thank you for living through that period of, of grief and difficulty and bringing up on her own a uh, Very vivacious and annoying young boy. Um, so, still.
1: So. Um, when you were writing, uh, you were writing with Olivia in mind.
5: I, I don't want to make her ego any bigger than it already is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was. Um, yes, I was. Uh, um, yeah, I was. I didn't know Olivia, uh, but I was a fan, and um, and it just seemed kind of inevitable, I don't know why I saw her playing dearly beloved and departed queen on, on television. <laughs> and I just saw every thought cross her face, every mm-hmm. every moment, she was so translucent. And I just looked at her and I thought, well, that's Hillary." And so that was a bit of a beacon throughout the process. Um, and it was just a thrill when she said yes, and it always felt like it was meant to be. Fantastic, okay. Okay. you. Um. While we're speaking
1: of mothers, uh, Tanya, you you make a tremendous impact in this film in a very brief amount of time on screen. Um, Can I ask, did you and uh, Michael do some bonding or how did you approach um, portraying his
6: mother? Did you spend time together? Um, Um, Thank you, by the way. That's really kind of you to say (laughs) that. Um, We had some rehearsal time um, at the start um, but then, so Sam shoots everything chronologically, and as you know, I appear, <laughs> like, sort of two-thirds of the way in. So, actually, I met Michael at the start, doing rehearsals, and then I went off to do another job, and then showed up on set about a month and a half, two months later, or something. <laughs> Sam looked surprised to see me. What are you doing here? <laughs> Um, so, I think, you know, I, 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 I'm a mum of a, a teenager who's, you know, in, and she's at an age where she's transitioning to another period of her life, which is quite significant, and this is very much what's happening with my character and with Michael's character, and so I think, I mean, those things, we just kind of, I think we spend a lot of time just looking into, into each other's eyes really, and just kind of being good scene partners together and trying to make, bring it to life.
1: Um, Olivia, I wanted to ask you um, Hillary is a woman that's had she has so much spirit, so much imagination inside of her It's been contained, it feels boxed in. And what is it about Stephen that um, unlocks something in her? Um, I, I guess it's really lovely to watch together to watch someone comes into the, to her world with a brain and a future. And beauty and it's like a, this sparkling light comes in and you can't take your eyes off him mm. and you can see why she's drawn to him and she sort of forgets what he might see but for some reason he doesn't see a spirit or a, a mind and um, a gentleness and there's, I just love the fact that they, they have this friendship and this relationship it's, it's not what you'd all imagine would happen and it is something beautiful that they have between them, and it's it's never going to last. And but um, it's it's a
6: lovely moment that they will both cherish forever. Um,
5: for me, I obviously knew that you know I was going to be working with some amazing, talented people, so I just wanted to prepare. Um, so I remember when I got the job and I got back from filming someone else, I message Sam and I said, I I need to sit down with you and talk about this character and talk about how I can you know. Had my acting coach gary nurse who was working very very intensely and just trying to figure out the period you know listening to the music um, watching a lot of the films that were um, in the screenplay and yeah man just kind of just going over the scenes to just let the words sink in i think that was a lot of the, the work for me but none of that can prepare you to actually being on set with Olivia Colman, <laughs> Sam Mendes, and Roger Deakins, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, a yeah. tiny Ruby, yeah. by the way. Um, so, yeah, for me, um, it was just being so prepared so that I can allow myself to be um, present, and I felt like um, that was that was definitely it.
7: Now Michael has not mentioned one of his biggest challenges, which is at the beginning of the shoot, he turned and said, do you think it's important? I, I'm really kind of phobic about birds, so we're not going to actually have to touch the bird. And we were like, no, 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 you're going to have to touch the bird. And then he, like a true pro, he just trained himself, and spent every day with those birds. And by the end, he was like a bird instead. Let's hear it for overcoming. So,
1: if I could also ask you a question. This is the fifth film that you have made with Mr. Mendes, and I love the fact that this is literally and metaphorically a metaphorical film about light. Um, and so I wondered, what it is. What is it about the relationship that you have that makes you want to keep working together? But also, there must be something that you understand about each other and the other's vision that makes you such a successful team? No
6: idea. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the projects are just wonderful. You know, when, when Sam sent this script, my wife James and I were spe- expecting something totally different, and, and suddenly there's this script that seems to be written about a seaside town. I grew up by the seaside, and suddenly I'm drawn into a world that, I mean, I grew up in the 60s, you know, young, growing up the seaside in the 60s, but there were still bikers. And I remember getting beaten up by the sailors that came to town on the weekends and the nightclubs. And so I suddenly, suddenly read something that seemed very connected to my life, actually. Right. Oh, so, so why we get on? Why does anybody get on? Similar sensibility in a sense. I mean, Sam just wants to make films about real people, and real situations, and the big phrase, human condition, I guess.
1: you
5: have done that here and
0: you brought it here to toronto and i can't thank you all we have now reached the very end of this special two-part episode of filmish chats um, from the toronto international film festival Um, our last q a is for the film after sun which is directed by charlotte wells in her feature debut um, I talked a little bit about this film in part one, as I had an interview with Paul Maskell. Um, but this Q&A is very in-depth. I think it's definitely the longest out of all of them. And there was a lot of really thoughtful questions that were asked, particularly to Charlotte and Paul um, during this Q&A, and mainly from the audience. Um, so I think this is definitely a Q&A worth listening to, because there's a lot of really insightful things talked about, um, and it's quite nice and refreshing and I really enjoyed sitting through this Q&A where it didn't feel like it was just the generic questions being asked but more provoking and more thoughtful questions um, being posed to uh, the creatives behind this film. In case you didn't hear part one of this recording or it's been a while since you listened to it, After Sun brims with warmth and the ache of a cherished memory. Scottish writer-director Charlotte Wells' feature debut is A Quiet Revelation, recalling a father-daughter journey to a Turkish seaside resort some 20 years after the fact. After Son employs the gentlest touch, yet leaves an indelible mark. Paul Maskell plays Callum, who is a 30-year-old father, and, and his daughter Sophie is played by Frankie Corio, who is just 11 years old. Um, this film features incredible performances from both Paul and Frankie, and absolutely amazing directing from Charlotte, considering that it's her first feature film. I won't talk too much more about this film, as I did go into more detail about it in part one. Um, if you want to hear more about Aftersun, you can go listen to part one of the Filmish Chat's TIFF special and hear me talk more about this film. But for now, please enjoy this Q&A for the film After Sun with director Charlotte Wells, actor Paul Maskell and producer Adele Romansky,
8: um, I'm going to open it up to the audience fairly soon because I know there'll be many questions for our guests. But Charlotte, I want to start with you. Not only is this a beautiful film about a relationship between a father and a daughter, but it also really encapsulates the form of memory. So I wonder if you could talk about the process of translating your memory into the writing in this film.
7: Oh, you don't start with an easy one. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like the script evolved a lot over the course of writing it and the idea at first didn't really incorporate. Can you guys hear her? I don't no. think your no. microphone no. is on.
9: Is this on? that where
7: There you go. go. Um, oh, okay. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the early drafts of the script like didn't, the, the initial concept of the film didn't, it wasn't built around memory It became about memory because the way I began to outline the film was by assembling memories, not from one holiday, from many holidays, from many instances throughout childhood. And so that became the first outline, like the first outline that I finally, finally was able to write the script from was really just like seven days and lists like set kind of memories, some pieces of fiction, but like a lot of anecdotes and memories um, kind of laid out, laid out in a very thoughtful order. Um, And then I think through the process of writing and delving into these memories, that process began to inform the script
8: itself. Mm -hmm. And so they started to kind of weave in and out of each other. And how quickly did your casting choices come? At what point was Paul involved and why did you think of him?
7: Yeah, I mean, we actually set out to cast Frankie first because we knew that was going to be the most challenging role. It's like a six-month casting process. We went out to over 800 kids. It was during the pandemic, so it was mostly remote. So whereas you'd ordinarily be in like football clubs or schools, it was like leveraging the... Uh, behemoth network of like mums WhatsApp groups, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is like a course to be reckoned with, um, and so that took like a six month process. And eventually, we met sixteen kids in person in Glasgow, and Frankie was one of them, the one of them. Um, and then once we kind of got toward the end of that process, we started to think about who Callum might be, mm-hmm. and of course, I'd been thinking about it, but like we hadn't, we hadn't kind of gone too far with it, and. Um, Paul was originally not available when we were shooting um, because I'd become quite excited about the prospect of him a little bit earlier on. And then things changed and he received the script and we had an opportunity to meet. And we just had a really, really lovely conversation, the kind you walk away from kind of, you know, levitating, just really excited. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I thought Paul just had like a real warmth and stability to him just inherently that, Would be a great counterpoint to the kind of undercurrents of of this character and he was um yeah thankfully quite excited by it too
8: you felt prepared to tackle being a young dad
9: (laughs) yeah i um i didn't really like I, i feel i feel like it's a question that keeps like cropping up that i really didn't consider hugely at the time was like the concept of him being a father was obviously was like obvious, but it was the um, like his innate being was more interesting to me. I feel like the part of him being a father is kind of simple to me. He's just an excellent father. That's the one thing that I think he's best at. Um, and it was just about kind of finding those moments that Charlie had written so beautifully in the script, where you give the audience brief glimpses into what's going on behind his relationship with Sophie. See, I felt
3: maybe it's I, I don't know I, I felt ready to play a young
8: Baldu yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't learn, yeah. <laughs> well, you did it wonderfully. Questions, right here.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, the use of under pressure just like ruined me. <laughs> like,
7: yeah no i didn't i mean the ending scene was written kind of as it plays out like these two sequences building and becoming meshed with one another but no it was just a case of being in the edit room late one night looking for anything else to do uh (laughs) and um one of the things that i do when i'm looking for anything else to do is listen to music and find kind of weird musical related things like performances on youtube (laughs) and i knew about this kind of like stripped back, almost a cappella version that existed. And I, I, I really don't know what possessed me, divine inspiration, I think, maybe. But I kind of ripped it off. It was also part of like, wouldn't it be funny? You know, like there were a lot of those things that came into the edit to entertain us. And um, it, it wasn't that funny. It was, kind of <laughs> 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 it was kind of special. It was immediately special. It just laid on top of our temp score. And I hit play, and I was like, oh. Um, And then I had to
8: call Adela and tell her that under pressure was in the film. <laughs> <laughs> and how did that go over?
10: I mean, it obviously went great. <laughs>
3: <laughs> right
8: here.
4: Um, nice film, Charlie. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, how much did it change, or did it change very much in the edit? Like, did you sort of. Is what we see kind of how it was on the page, or like with the dream sequence, or not dream se- but you know, with, with the dance sequences and stuff like that, did you sort of find that rhythm in the edit, or was it kind of, did you always sort of find it that? Way? Um, uh,
7: yes and no. Like the, the, the rave sequences, they're not so dissimilar to how they were in the script. I think for the most part, their position held. There might be, a, I think there's a couple that are different, and I was always open to that. Like so much of it was going to be about transitions in and out of them where emotionally they felt right, and I kind of guesstimated that in the script. That was always gonna be how it felt when we actually saw it on screen. Other sequences, like um, the same sky sequence, for example, that was an edit discovery, or the carpet and the teens leading into the kind of teens playing pool and her watching them kiss and Mm -hmm. the other ones covering her eyes. Those two sequences, um, in addition to one earlier on in the film, those were edit, Discoveries originally cutting around problems like the same same sky sequence was um, like five, four or five individual scenes, and some of them didn't, we didn't quite get what we needed from them. And um, yeah, Blair, my editor, kind of weaved weaved that first one together, and everybody who was watching it kind of went crazy for it. And he was like, "Oh, people, people are too excited about it. I'm not." I'm not doing that again. And then inevitably he found these beautiful sequences that started to just shape the film. They were a really big discovery in the edit just for the overall arc and pace.
4: Were you ever tempted to do more with the grown-up Sophie? Like, because um, I feel like, I don't know, i would just be curious to know about that was, No, that I was tempted to
7: do less, <laughs> um, but not more. No? Yeah. it seems like you started
8: No, no, Happy to chat. <laughs> But that is something that stands out in the film is that it's so much her pov and then there's this interwoven child point of view and adult point of view which i think is so ingenious in the way that you've handled that
7: yeah and that was really like a collaboration with my cinematographer is like establishing adult sophie as the kind of fixed overarching point of view in the film Mm -hmm. and then having so any any sequence in which she is um you know you see the two of them on holiday together you know those are her memories to some extent scenes where you see Callum alone or her imaginings to some extent. Obviously, that comes through to varying degrees and people may perceive that, people may not. But Greg, the cinematographer, and I were very um, thoughtful about how we shot each of those different points of view in the film. Um, More
8: questions? In the back?
9: Um, Great job on the movie. Uh, My question's for Paul. I know you just said that you wanted the challenge of but was there anything else that originally drew you to the script? Yeah, I think it was the... Um, I'm attracted to films where it's a kind of like show, don't tell the audience, and elicit a kind of response that isn't... It has nothing really to do with like the narrative journey of the film. So it was those moments in private where I was like, you've got three or four moments when Calm's by himself, where it has to do a lot of work for the audience to go like, there's something going on. Mm-hmm. And... That was a challenge even from reading the script. I was like, that's going to be hard if I do that. Um, but ultimately, it was the thing that moved me when I read it. So I was like, we can pull that off on the day, which I'm really proud of what it does to an audience when we see it with an audience. So it was those moments in particular, I was like, that's going to be a, a challenge yeah, in a good
8: way. yeah. To that point, exactly, there was something that stood out to me in one of the references is in Callum's stack of books with the Tai Chi, there's a book of Margaret Tate, who's a film, a Scottish filmmaker and poet, writer, who I love, and she has this incredible lyricism and sort of, you just described in a way, the way that she shoots, and I was just wondering, oh, obviously, you put that book there for a reason. (laughs)
7: Yeah, I, sometimes I look at that stack of books and I'm like, I, I, don't, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> um, tai Chi, Margaret Tate. <laughs> well, yeah, like the, there was the idea was like Tai Chi. There's like a computer programming book underneath that it, is kind of lost from frame. Like these, these the idea that he brought all these books on holiday. He could possibly read this idea of like, you know, great ambition that is never quite fulfilled. The idea he has of himself versus what may be possible. Um, Margaret Tate, yeah, is uh, was the first um, woman to direct a feature film in Scotland in 1992. Um, and she's amazing, and I really only discovered her work kind of a little bit earlier on the process of writing. She made this amazing film, Blue-Black Permanent, or Black-Blue, no it's Blue-Black, I always get it the wrong way around. <laughs> uh, which is really not dissimilar to this film, like shockingly <laughs> similar to this film. Um, a woman kind of looking back on her mother and it starts to kind of nest inside of itself. Um, Walter is very prominent in that film. Um, yeah, I, she, she is like a, an amazing it's an amazing heritage actually cinema in Scotland and she really is a filmmaker who just absolutely did it by herself like she had a studio she had no help no support you know she was like in her 70s when she made that film it was just like a nice nod. Yeah. And a reminder to myself to see more of her,
8: her films. <laughs> more questions right here. Did
9: you
7: I told Paul once everything I perceived was going on with the character. And then that that was it. You know, it wasn't like a mandate, it wasn't what this character had to be. It was my perception of it. Um, we discussed like many more aspects of the character in more detail than that. But um, you know, it's like a collaborative process and it seemed silly for him not to know exactly where I was coming from and then that built a foundation that I think he, hopefully gave the opportunity for for him to kind of build on build the character on
9: yeah and I also feel like that conversation was almost like dotting eyes and crossing T's to a certain extent because yeah. of our the first conversation that we had around the audition process I feel like we were on I don't, I don't know why very just very similar wavelengths about who Callum is I
8: think. question right there in the middle
4: yeah yep yeah, so almost building on that exact question, but how about with the actors like Sophie, like how much did you let her in that process? And even all of this,
5: mutual, how did you build that dynamic where
7: can sort of Do you mean the process generally as a character, or?
5: Yeah, like, or like there's a certain level of honesty you can have more with Paul as, as an adult in this case? Yeah,
7: absolutely. Like Frankie never had a copy of the script. And that was kind of under the guidance, the very scary guidance, of my casting director, (laughs) um, who I trusted, ultimately, um, after grilling as to how this could possibly work. And uh, we we sat down, we had two weeks of rehearsal, and Paul and I sat down with Frankie with a physical copy of the script, and we read it through twice.
3: Did we do that?
5: Yeah.
7: (laughs) But it was a a redacted script. So it was a a script that only had the scenes in which she was in the film. So it was kind of important to us together that she never have any idea what was going on. Um, with the character of her father away from, away from her, you know, partly because I think it helps. For sure. Yeah, yeah like yeah. Paul, like kind of keep up this challenge of of keeping it from her, you know, and it just didn't seem relevant, like just to kind of have her know what she needed to know. I mean, sometimes she's a smart kid. Sometimes she'd be like.
9: She like, would hate when I was yeah. sad. Like she just Frankie couldn't. Go there, which which I think is exactly the way Sophie should respond. And there was yeah. like two two moments in the film where like Cal was openly, I think like upset or pushing towards a kind of admission to her like at the mud bath, or when they're talking about the eleventh birthday, and Frankie just
7: she's not having uh, it. She's, she's not having it, and it's,
9: and it's because she doesn't, or she do, wasn't given the script. That there's kind of a total open, transparent kind of. Actor in front of you, yeah, yeah. It's, it's
10: amazing. Uh-huh. Uh, well, I wanted to hear um, more about how mu- how you made the decision about how much to tell us the audience in, in about the father's background, but now I'm really curious to know: has Frankie seen the movie? Or what does she think?
7: <laughs> yeah, Frankie saw the film again. She'd never seen it before, so she saw it the premiere I told her not to yell at me during the movie that was like the only I was thinking of the karaoke scene specifically Um, she loved it she was so proud of it it was that was like a really special moment she was just delighted Um, and I think she found it very satisfying like you know when the teens cover her eyes you know like she didn't see those two teens making out, but she knew something was up. And so she'd be like, I can't believe that you did that and you didn't let her look. I don't know. Um, Yeah, but uh, no, she's, she's very happy with the film.
8: More questions? Right here?
7: When it screened for the first time <laughs> i mean i'm not i'm not wholly joking i you know like we had screened it to some people but there was a lot of trust at a certain point in the process that it would be okay um you know like a lot of thought and craft went into the edit occasionally i felt something which i you know, was always promising. <laughs> um, I think we knew right from the beginning we had something sp- like pretty special in that final sequence, like Under Pressure was in the first cut. Um, so I think we knew that it built to what it was always supposed to build to. Like, you know, some parts of the script I realized better than others, but the end was always clear, like, there, that's it. That was what, that's what I was trying to do. Um, and so then it was like, how do you lead an audience to that? And how do you? How do you um, gain their trust uh, to continue watching and feel as though, even if they don't know where it's going, they're confident that we as the filmmakers are, are like confidently leading them towards something? It was just a process, um, a process of lots of feedback and recuts and sharing. But ultimately, I didn't really know until until the film was finished.
8: Thank you. <laughs> Something that the film does really beautifully um, is it builds through texture, also. And I think about Callum's frustration when he can't take off his cast or he can't take off the diving suit. And you know, there are these close ups of texture, and sometimes that's how memory works. But you feel the frustration of the character through those moments and how that builds. So, just in addition to like the light and everything else, there's a real sense of texture in the film. Is that something that you were really.
7: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, what what you mentioned the wetsuit. What, what was the other example you just gave? The cast that he was trying to get off. Yeah, I don't know that I thought about those specifically in that way. Mm-hmm. I definitely thought about what those moments felt like. I thought about what they sounded like. So I suppose yes, like mm-hmm. in all the indirect ways, without quite as you phrased it. Um, but no, like a, a huge part of kind of capturing this feeling of. Just the holiday itself was was very much about like sense like sensory things you know like I always thought about that moment of stepping off a plane when you're British and don't know heat and you you know the doors of the plane open and you're just confronted by this like heat in the air you know it was like capturing like how do you capture things like that on film it's really hard um, but yeah that was always that was always at the forefront or like the yeah the feeling of like the lights and the hills at night it's all like yeah. how about the shooting on film? How about that? That <laughs> <laughs> well, adds some texture too. It does. And it was something that like Greg and I felt really strongly about, like knowing also as a way to unite like the different types of points of view, the different footage, because we reshot the digital on film too. Yeah, I mean it just is so evocative of I mean film is so evocative of all the things in the Fox of It it's amazing. For many reasons people have stated before, but like specifically for this period, um, for its like handling of focus for just its like texture, yes. Um, absolutely.
8: I think we have time for one one more question. Right here.
7: You mentioned at the beginning this is a collection of your memories. Have your family seen the film and did, was there any challenge of those memories or any having them relive those memories, or any discussion of those memories? like my favorite line from the souvenir. It's like, does your family know what the film is about? <laughs> um. Yeah. No. I think. I think ultimately, like, things end up removed enough that that doesn't. It. It becomes a lot less relevant than you think it is when you start making something. Everything feels so obvious and transparent and readable, to other people. But no, in the end, I think things like are transformed enough that that really wasn't so. Relevant. I think, like my greater my greater concern was that because there are superficial ways in which, like, this looks like me and my dad, for example. I accidentally cast a kid who looks identical to Violet as a kid. Like I um accidentally, accident. I really, I yeah, truly. She copied my haircut. I don't know what to say. Um, yeah, like I, I think. If anything, I had to say to my family, like I need to remind you, this is fiction. Like I wasn't on this holiday. Like my dad didn't like leave me at night. You know, <laughs> it was kind of the reverse. Uh, is like reminding them, like yes, you will see like lots of me. You'll see lots of my dad in this, but like it really is fiction. Um, at the end of the day.
10: Congratulations,
8: though, being the first time at test. And congratulations. Thank you. Making it Thanks so much. It's a very special time, Since you're here, what was it like to work on this project? I mean, it's such a special film, it
10: must have been such a joy. <laughs> it was like one big summer holiday vacation abroad, yeah. Um, for one hour a week. <laughs> yeah, for one hour, <laughs> yeah, one hour on Sundays. Um, what was it like? Uh, I still find so much pleasure in working with um, directors on their early work and going through that process of uh, supporting while watching you discover what it means to go from a short format to a long format um i don't really know how to put that into words it's an incredibly special feeling and that's why we as a as a producing body who are many more people that are not on this stage right now still um support debut work while at the same time making like large franchise movies about talking lions. Um, there's just something really special in that collaboration. So anyways, thank you guys so much for staying to have this conversation. I don't know if we caught you when the lights came up and you didn't mean to be here, but <laughs> it was such a pleasure to, to uh, chat with you. So thank you. thank you. And that's it. That's the
0: end of this two-part film film-ish chat special. From the Toronto International Film Festival. I really hope you enjoyed this content, um, found some of it interesting, and hopefully after you get to see the films you find some of what the creators behind this film said to be insightful. This is obviously a very special episode for us as this doesn't happen very often, so we hope you enjoyed it and we hope that we're able to do something similar like this again in the future. If you want to learn more about East, you can visit our website film-east.com where we house our other episodes of Film East Chats, as well as some of the other content that we produce as an organization, including original film criticism books, in-depth film and TV essays, and information about any of our upcoming events. You can follow us on any of our social media platforms, which is at films underscore east, and that's films with an S underscore east. I've been Shelby Cook, head curator and editor-in-chief at Film East. And we hope you come back soon to listen to another episode of Filmish Chats. Bye!